0: Welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of our Anti-Racist Lecture Series. This is our first speaker, Reverend Dr. Eric Barreto, speaking on anti-racist faith and scripture.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for spending your afternoon here with uh, this beautiful day, thinking a little bit about uh, the book of Acts, thinking a little bit about the Bible, thinking a little bit about how Scripture helps us think about our differences. The reality is, is that I think we have a significant problem before us. And the problem is this, that even as our communities are changing, our neighborhoods are changing... The, the church, in the church, we have not been able to fully articulate, articulate well, articulate theologically and biblically, what God thinks about our differences. We've fallen short over and over again in having a biblical imagination, a theological imagination for how we think about race and ethnicity. These are big problems facing us, not just in the church, but more broadly as well. These are questions that we cannot avoid. The first thing I'd like us to ask you to do, and I think we'll try this. I think we can probably, enough of you are wearing masks. I think we can do this. I want you to turn to a neighbor near you uh, and share what your race was or the first time you realized there were people of other races. So that's the question for us today. Is that, all right, turn to somebody nearby and share with them briefly. All right, if I can start calling you back, I hope you'll keep having these uh, conversations with one another. I've asked people in many spaces that question, to share stories about the first time they realized what their race was, or the first time they realized there were people of other races. And I've heard all kinds of powerful stories, and I imagine those stories were shared here today as well. There are stories of great pain, stories of when we've gone astray, when our ignorance has hurt other people i imagine you shared stories of great joy moments when as a child or as an adult you were able to overcome and look past things that previously have divided us and find in someone else a humanity and a story that matters i imagine there were funny stories and sad stories why I think it's important for us to share these stories, however, is because we bring so much with us. We don't just bring our thoughts and our theologies. We bring our stories and our place. We bring our hurts and we bring our hopes. Since you since you shared with stories with one another, I, I wanted to share a couple of stories with you about these kinds of moments in my own life. I grew up on the most beautiful island in the world. It's the island of Puerto Rico. Everybody knows this. and acknowledge, Yeah, see? Everybody knows. It's a fact. It's not even a matter of opinion. I grew up there until I was nine years old. And the first place we moved after Puerto Rico was a town called Slidell, Louisiana. Anybody know where Slidell, Louisiana is? Yeah, yeah. It's the same as Puerto Rico. There's no cultural differences. It's, I'm just kidding. No, it was really, it was hard for us. It was a beautiful place and great food, but it was hard for us to make that move. I moved when I was nine years old, and when you're in pre-adolescent and adolescent, all you want to do is to fit in, to find a community, to find people who will embrace you and love you. I remember in elementary school and middle school that there was a, a classmates got a lot more attention from the girls in the class than I did, and I was really puzzling in my mind, why is it that he gets more attention than I do? I thought about it, and I thought, ha, I finally got it. I figured out that he had thin lips. So I practiced trying to talk like this at home in front of a mirror, but it it didn't work. The other thing when you're a teenager is that you're quite good at fitting in, or you can get quite good at it. And I got really good at it, so much so that eventually my friends would throw their arms around me and say, you know, Eric, we don't even see you as Puerto Rican. We see you as one of us. And my adolescent heart was just so happy because all I wanted was a place to belong. But now I look back on those moments quite differently because my friends in their effort to embrace, to love me, to make me feel included did so accidentally by denying a critical part of who I am. The, the, the place that made me who I was, the food that I ate, the language that I spoke, unintentionally, they embrace me, but only so far. I was once on a phone interview for a job. And you know that part of the phone interview or of an interview when they ask you if you have any questions, so you relax and then you start asking them questions. It was that part of the interview I'd asked a question, but in the middle of it, this, this person on the phone said, wait, wait, I have, I have one more question. He says, all the people gathered around this table are white. And just looking at your resume, I would just assume you are white too. How are you going to be able to bring Hispanics to our institution? To which I wanted to respond, would it help if I had an accent or if I were mowing your lawn? But of course, I didn't think about those things in the moment. These are hard conversations to have. These are conversations where we will make mistakes with one another where we will have to seek to reconcile and repair what we have done wrong, where we will have to apologize and be apologized to, but they are are critical uh, conversations for us to have. Because the world is so deeply riven by our differences. And the ways that we are policed, the ways uh, that we are schooled, where we get to live, these are all realities before us. And I worry that too often in the church, we have not given a full enough biblical or theological imagination for what we believe. Three basic ideas I want us to go away with today. One is that our differences uh, are, in, uh, are unavoidable. That's number one. Our differences are unavoidable. Uh, when I've asked people that question about the first time they encountered people of different races, um there, there, I often hear stories about people going off to college and meeting someone who is of a different race or serving in the military and meeting someone of a different race or that one time when they were kids and that one family moved into the neighborhood. Those uh kinds of stories are less and less common in my experience. That whether you are in rural America, urban America, suburban America, you, we are surrounded by folks from different places with different stories all around us. Not only that, we've got these, these phones in our pockets that take us around the world. If we could at one point in this, in, in this world act as if other people looked like us, think like, like, think like us, acted like us, then that is no longer our story. Our differences are simply unavoidable. But second, I want to suggest that our differences are indispensable. They are indispensable. The the church historian Justo Gonzalez wrote a little book called Santa Biblia, that's Holy Bible in Spanish. And in there, he talks about the the parable of the laborers, which you all might remember, right? So um, a landowner goes out early in the morning, hires people first thing, comes back later, hires a few more people, does this throughout the day, including hiring people basically for the last hour of the day. When it's time to get paid, he starts by paying the people who've only just started working, who've barely broken a sweat, and he pays them a day's wage. So the people who've been working hard all day with blisters on their feet and on their hands, with sweat on their brow, think, we've hit the lottery because if those lazy bums got paid a day's wage, just imagine what is coming our way. But of course, the landowner goes through and gives everyone, what, the same wage, the same day's wage. Gonzalez observes that in most middle class congregations, what we hear is, or what was preached, and this is what I remember hearing growing up, is that our sense of justice is here, and God's sense of justice is up here. That what the landowner does is fundamentally unfair. but Because it's God doing it, you just, you just have to deal with it, right? Sometimes God does things that don't make sense. God's justice up here, our sense of justice here, just just deal with it. Gonzalez points out that in Latinx communities, especially in immigrant communities, people hear a very different story. These are communities where people know what it's like to wait in a marketplace or in a parking lot waiting for work, desperate for work. They know that the people who got there early in the morning needed to work that day in order to feed their families. They were ready to work. They were willing to work They just weren't hired until the end of the day. In those communities, this isn't a story about God's uh, justice not making sense. God's justice making all the sense in the world because God's justice is not up here. God's justice meets our deepest needs. And as I shared with you, I'm Puerto Rican. I grew up on this island But Puerto Ricans are born U.S. citizens, so when we moved over to Louisiana, it was culturally difficult, but we didn't have to get a green card. We didn't have to take the steps that so many of my Latinx kin have to take. I needed the witness of my neighbors to know what that story could mean. And without that witness, that story would have stayed the same for me. And that story wouldn't have accompanied me in my everyday life. So when we lived in Atlanta, we owned this little home. And every once in a while, I had to do a house project. And you go to Home Depot. And um, the rule of the universe is you never go to Home Depot once. right? You got to go like seven times, right? Because you forget something, you break something. I think it's how they make their money. But I remember one day I was working on something in the house. And I went first thing in the morning. And there was a group of men waiting for work. And as I kept coming back throughout the day, there was still a group of them, smaller every time I came back, but still, still there. Without the help of my neighbors, I couldn't have seen the word of God taken flesh in that moment. And I couldn't have been the faithful person that God has called me to be. Our differences are indispensable. They're not just nice to have. They are the means by which God teaches us the fullness of faithfulness. We need our neighbors in order to be the faithful people God has called us to be. Uh, And number three is that our differences, my friends, are a gift from God. Our differences are a gift from God. I think this might be the hardest thing for us to wrap our minds around because so often in churches and in so many churches I've visited, our differences tend to be treated as a problem to solve, as a puzzle to get right. How do we get those people to come and worship with us? It's a problem. It's a puzzle. But what if our differences are instead a gift from God, a gift God has brought to our lives not so that we can um, homogenize someone else's community or bring them into ours, but that their particular story, their particular life, their particular faith might teach us who God wants us to be. What we've done as humans is taken this gift that God has given us, our differences, and instead of seeing it to be curious and loving towards one another, Uh, a way to wonder what God is teaching us, we have used our differences to figure out who belongs and who doesn't, who's in and who's out, who's inferior and who's superior. That is, we've taken a gift God has given us and turned it upside down and inside out and used it as a way to divide us. And what do we call it when we take a gift from God and we wreck it? We call that sinfulness. The problem isn't that we're different. The problem is that we have misunderstood and misimagined why God made us first place. So we need some help. We need some help. And here, I think the Book of Acts can be very helpful to us. So if, yeah, I think you have Bibles. If you can turn to Acts chapter two, we'll get there in, in just one moment. If you grew up in the church, you might have heard a phrase like this: "If we only did the church, if we only did church like they did in the Book of Acts, we would be in a much better place." The sense that the book of Acts narrates a perfect church, or at least a pretty good church that we should imitate. Um, I don't think that's the best way to read this text for various reasons. I think the better way to read this text is for us to think about the way that these stories, these fantastical stories we find in the book of Acts, shape our imaginations. It's not three easy steps to become a better church. It's powerful stories that walk with us in our lives. And I think Acts chapter 2 gives us a good example of this. So Acts chapter 2 starts like this. Page 119. Page 119. We'll hang out for a second as people are getting there. Page 119, Acts chapter 2, the story of Pentecost. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So think about who the they are here. This is the second chapter in the book of Acts. The they are the newly reconstituted 12 disciples. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's remained faithful throughout her life to this, to this mission. It's all these other uh, followers of Jesus that have gathered together and are waiting in Jerusalem. Jesus tells them to do something that I find really difficult to do when Jesus asked me to do. hardest thing that Jesus asked me to do, I think, is to, to wait. Jesus asks them to wait, and they wait, and this great gift falls upon them. So, and suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. So, how many of you? Have, 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 let me try that again. How many of you have tried to learn another language? It's super easy, right? Because you take one word in one language and you plug it in. No, it's not how it works. Uh, what are some reasons? Maybe shout them out. What are some reasons that make learning another language so hard? Fear of being an idiot. So yeah, there's a sense of embarrassment, right? What if I say the wrong thing? What if there's this word that kind of means the same thing? I think it means the same thing, but it means something entirely different. And people laugh at me. Yeah. Fear of being an idiot. Others, please. Yeah. So it's easier to learn it. And when you hear it as a child, our brains... At least when there we're little kids or kind of mush when it comes to language, we're ready to learn it. So I learned English when I was five years old, which is why you can't tell that I learned English when I was five years old, right? Um, it's much easier as a kid to learn this stuff. Good. What else? Different. Yeah, different characters, different sounds. So you might need to learn a whole new alphabet. But also you might need to teach your tongue and your lips and your mouth to make sounds you're not used to making so i can roll my r in spanish all day but don't ask me to do it in french It just sounds awful i don't know what i'm doing or those guttural sounds that you have to make in german i can't, i can't i can't do those I can't do those so even just even if in your head you know how to say this stuff convincing your your mouth to make those sounds is is a whole other matter yeah yeah words that cannot be translated there's a word in spanish called um, sobremesa so sobremesa is the conversation you have at a dinner table after you finish eating, but before you started cleaning up. You know what I mean? Right, you can say all that in one word in Spanish, but it take, took me like 17 different words, right, to say that in English. You can kind of translate it, but not, not really, right? So um, notice the difficulties of learning another language, the sounds we have to make, the, the way that we see the world, because, because what's the best way to learn another language is to go live in a place not just because you're forced to speak the language to eat, but because language isn't just about words and syllables and sounds. Language is about a place. Language is about people and their stories and their history and who they've been and who they hope to be. So notice what happens here at Pentecost. is that all of a sudden these uneducated Galileans can speak all the languages of the world. So back to the story. It continues. Now there are devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. And if you keep reading, Peter starts preaching here. And the first thing he says is, you know, these men are not drunk as you you suppose. It is only nine o'clock in the morning. And to Peter I say, you've not met my friends. But back to the question Peter asks, what does this mean? What does this mean? In a lot of study Bibles and in sermons I've heard, What this story means is that Pentecost fixes something that went wrong before. That Pentecost sets right something that went wrong before. And that is the story of the Tower of Babel. So if you grew up in Sunday school, what do you remember about the Tower of Babel? Don't look at Genesis 11. We'll go look at it here in a second. But what comes to mind when you think about Genesis 11? Words or ideas that you remember about the Tower of Babel? Yeah, people trying to reach heaven. So they build this tall tower so that they can knock God off of God's pedestal. Right, good. What else? Yeah, so Yeah. So God makes it at the end so they cannot understand one another. The other element you often hear about the story is that it's a prideful people. They're so proud of themselves. They try to build this big tower. So God looks down and says, well, we're going to stop this. And then, therefore, God punishes them, God afflicts them by making them speak different languages. Is it a curse, however, that I grew up speaking Spanish and not English? Is it a, an affliction that there are people, I'm sure, here who speak all kinds of different languages? We know in our guts that can't be what that story means, and yet that's so often how we teach that story. So turn with me to Genesis 11. Alex is going to tell us what uh, what page that is here in a second. It's near the front. Genesis 11. Come on, Alex. You were seminary educated. Page 9. Thank you. I had to give him a hard time. Oh, yeah, he was sweating. So Genesis 11 comes in the wake of Noah's Ark and the flood and all that. So it starts like this, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as they migrated from the east, these are the people who are repopulating the world, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So notice what they fear. What's their biggest concern is that they would be scattered. That they wouldn't be in the same place. Why? Because the world is big and scary. right? And there are wild animals and other people and there are famines everywhere. Better to huddle together with people who look like you, think like you, see the world like you do. It also says they're interested in making a name for themselves, which to us, I think in English sounds like arrogance, but in Hebrew has more to do with, let us create an identity for ourselves so we don't forget who we are. And they build a city with a tower. Now think about this. What is a tower for in in a city in the first place? Why build a big tower? Well, it's because you can see where your enemies are coming from. You can see any threats from far away. And when Genesis 11 says, let's build a tower with its top in the heavens, there's no intention there of going up into heaven to knock God off of God's pedestal. It just means let's build a really tall tower, one that we can see all our enemies from far away. So here you have a people afraid of losing who they are, afraid of being scattered. And so they do what a lot of us do when we fear being scattered. We huddle together with people who look like us, think like us, And we build a huge wall to keep people out. The Lord came down, the story continues. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And notice that the Lord has to come down to see this tower with its supposedly top in its heavens, right? Human aspiration is one thing. Divine aspiration is another. And the Lord said, look, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. And it continues. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, (coughs) and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. God looks down and sees what they are doing and intervenes. But what is it that the people of Babel are doing? It's resisting a divine call. So remember, when Eve and Adam are sent out of the garden, God tells them to fill the earth And to multiply. God apparently is interested in a world full of people and languages and cultures and foods. But here we see this human resistance to being scattered, to filling the earth with those languages and cultures. So that what God does here is not punish the people of Babel by making them speak different languages. I think God is still creating the world God desires. A God full of difference and language and peoples and cultures. That what God does at Babel is create a diverse world. And I, and I think I'm right about this, or at least I think Luke agrees with me. Because think back to Babel. If Babel were, I mean, sorry, think back to Pentecost. If, if Pentecost were a reversal of the Tower of Babel, what should have happened at Pentecost? Everyone should have spoken the same language. And it could have been the language they spoke at Babel, it could have been Hebrew, it could have been Aramaic, it could have been the language of the gods, which is Spanish, again, we all know this. God could have invented a perfect language with just the right words to express the good news, with grammar that makes sense, sounds that anyone could make. God could have asked us to learn a new language to understand who God is, but notice what God does at Pentecost is that God doesn't ask us to learn a new language. God learns each and every one of our weird languages with all their strange sounds and their strange words. God draws near to us, and everyone gathered at Pentecost hears the good news of Jesus in the language that will most touch their hearts, in their language that their mother whispered in their ears when they were babies. That's how you heard the good news of Jesus, in that language. But there's one more thing to that story. You, in whatever language you would have heard it, would have heard the fullness of the gospel. But in order to really understand the breadth and depth of God's grace, it wasn't enough to hear the gospel preached in your own language. You had to turn to the person to your left and to your right, to people who heard the uh, the gospel proclaimed in a very different language than yours, and ask them what they Ask them what they heard. What is it that God said to you? Pentecost is not a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Pentecost embraces the world that God created at Babel, a world full of languages and peoples, because apparently God chooses difference from the very first, from the very beginning of creation to the very beginning of the Church of Jesus. There at Pentecost, it starts, and it starts in the midst of differences. If those many languages are not a curse or an affliction to overcome, they are the gift God has given us to understand who God is. One more story. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. 128, 8 New Testament. Acts chapter 10 starts like this. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. Here we have a representative of the Roman Empire, of Roman power. And maybe the first time somebody reads Acts, they think, well, this guy must be a bad guy. But we find out that he is someone who loves God and who God loves. We learn later that his prayers are heard by God. Cornelius has a vision. One time in that vision, the vision tells him to go and send for Peter, and Peter and, and, and Cornelius says, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And he sends off for Peter. If you keep going in the story, you find out the next day, Peter has his own vision. His vision is of a blanket that comes down from heaven, and that blanket is full of all kinds of animals. You have a stained glass window of this. Uh, in in your in your sanctuary and one of the animals apparently on that on that blanket is a panda which i think is just really nice right so the voice from heaven says to peter three times that blanket comes down three times the voice says three times the blanket comes down and the voice says kill and eat kill that panda peter and peter three times says i'm not eating that panda I can't do this, right? There are unclean animals there. Peter refuses to do this thing the voice tells him to do. And, and Peter wakes up from this vision, confused about what it means. Cornelius's men show up. Peter goes with them. But Peter is resisting this, 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 this call. This whole, he's not quite sure what to make of this. And the first thing that happens when they show up at Cornelius's house is that Cornelius tries to worship Peter. Cornelius just like Gentiles all over the place. Just the, the, Peter's worst fears come to fruition, but Peter sticks around and he wonders what is going on. And again, the story is repeated and Cornelius explains what he saw and Peter explains what he saw. And I think Peter starts to understand. So look at verse, uh, verse 20. I got to look at it. Hold on. No, before that. Yeah, 34. Sorry, you're right. Thank you. 34 Peter begins and preaches, saying, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. Peter, Peter gets it, it doesn't matter where you've come from, it matters if God has called you. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman or a Greek or a Jew, a centurion or a soldier or a slave, it doesn't matter if God has called you. But that's not quite good enough for Peter, because if you look after verse 34, you see that he just goes on preaching and preaching. Uh, I think Peter does what I do when I get nervous. I just start preaching, and he just talks, and he preaches, and he preaches, and he preaches. And in one of my favorite verses in the book of Acts, I think it's verse 42. Is that right? 44, verse 44. I need to take Alex with me everywhere. Look at verse 44. Verse 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. While Peter was still speaking. So notice the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter's sermon. It's as if God says, enough, Peter, enough with all your words, enough with all your worries. I'm going to show you what my grace looks like. And the Holy Spirit falls upon all who heard the word. On Cornelius, which we know he's a good guy in his household, we know they're they're a faithful household, but apparently earlier, Cornelius invited all his friends over too, all these Gentiles along with him. The Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Without them asking for it, without them looking for it, the Holy Spirit goes where the Holy Spirit chooses to go. If you keep reading, it says that Peter, that Peter's companions were amazed that the holy spirit fell even upon the gentiles. And this is where i get really frustrated with peter and his companions because like seriously were did you not do the reading for the class? Were you not reading along? In acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus tells uh, the disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And who in the world did you think you'd find out there except a bunch of dirty gentiles? Or if you go back to the beginning of the gospel of Luke where there's all these songs and it looks like a Broadway musical more than the Bible, right? That Mary's singing and Simeon is singing. And Simeon says that Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Or if I go back to the prophet Isaiah, when Isaiah imagines all the nations of the world coming to worship together at the one mountain of the one God, are not you listening? Weren't you paying attention? Or, or an Abram is called to be a blessing to the nations? Or when God creates all the world and calls it all good, weren't you listening? Weren't you paying attention? But the truth is that when God's grace falls upon those people I don't think are deserving, people I don't think count, I get nervous too. When God seems to be doing a new thing, or at least a thing that seems new to me, and the Spirit is acting in ways in other communities that I couldn't imagine would be part of God's own children. I, I get anxious too. The truth is, is that God in acts is a God of surprise and over and over again, God surprises the people of God going places they assumed were devoid of God's presence. God shows up among people and in places we never anticipated God would go. And it turns out, in this story and in so many others, God goes always ahead of us, surprising us at every turn. These are not stories that we just imitate. They're not just perfect stories of a perfect church that we lament we're not like. These are stories meant to shape our imaginations. What if we move through this world imagining our differences as a gift God has brought to us and not a curse. What if we imagined that God is in the business of surprising us at every turn? What if we expected those places we think are devoid of God's presence, where we think we're bringing God with us? It turns out God's already been there. That's the kind of imagination I think we need in the church when it comes to thinking about race and our differences. Not three easy steps to being more polite and kind, but a radical imagination that says God loves our differences, God created our differences, God wants our differences to flourish, not so that we stay apart, but that we're driven towards one another with curiosity and love and hope, assuming that in those stories that are not like mine, I'm going to hear God's voice in a way I've never heard it before. So I have two kids, and Elena is about to turn 13, Nico's 11, and they are beautiful and the best kids. Um, They are Puerto Rican like their dad, and white like their mom. Their identities are unsure, they're complex, and sometimes we run into issues thinking about this. So when we signed them up for elementary schools uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, there's a form we had to fill out with name and address and phone number, all the standard stuff. And there was also a place to mark their race. And you could only pick one box. <clears throat> and the administrator we were working with explained that we had to pick only one box and you could only change your mind once, which I don't still don't know what that means. We had neighbors who were in a similar situation and those neighbors were just gonna refuse to pick a box and the administrator they were talking to sheepishly said that if they didn't pick a box they would have to send someone to their kids classroom to look at them and pick a box for them now don't misunderstand me friends i once shared that story and afterwards somebody came up to me and said you know what box they should have picked the human race box and that's not actually what i'm saying i'm not saying we need to have one box but in the church we need to imagine many boxes many stories, many identities, many complexities. Because my friends, these are not curses. They are gifts God has given us. And my friends, I need so desperately for there to be a church that one day my children walk into and their beautiful stories and their beautiful faces are not something that need to be explained away but something that that community relishes is the very presence of God's spirit in their midst. I hope there's a church there that relishes their differences because it was God who made them and made us in this way. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. So we have a few moments for Q and a, um, I'm gonna continue to let you hold the mic. Uh, just go ahead and repeat the question um, and we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. any questions, friend? Questions or thoughts?
1: Ah, so the question is i so do I not believe in boxes i I do believe in boxes. I believe in their proliferation. I believe that we have tended to oversimplify our sense of identity. Um, And I think one of the ways that we see this most powerfully is in the way that whiteness works. That whiteness has taught so many folks that they're white and that's all they are. And that whiteness has erased where they've come from and their people and the struggles that their people brought with them. That they were Scottish and English and German and Norwegian I think we need more and richer boxes. And I think we need to start, in order to do this work well, we need to be able to tell our stories in a way that's generous and faithful so that we can receive other people's stories in a generous and faithful way as well. Um, sometimes boxes are really necessary. So in the case of, of this school, they weren't being mean. They were deeply concerned that children of color we're not performing as well as white children in the public schools. And they had to somehow track that so they could address it. So I'm not saying get rid of boxes or I'm um, not anti-box. I'm just like for checking as many boxes as necessary and just thinking more complexly about our identities, so that when somebody introduces themselves, you ask about their story uh, and the box isn't enough because you want to know more. I had a professor who always asks, like who wants to ask the second question? Because the first one's the hard one. Somebody has to ask it, but then after that we get going. Yep. No,
0: no I, I could think of one. Good, I had a professor once, I'll echo that, uh, who said, if there are no questions, then I'm, from what I'm hearing, you understand everything I just said, you're on board, we're all in agreement." Yeah, no, I, I do invite you all to ask questions, friends. What are we thinking?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what's the point of the tower? I think the point of the tower is, um, is defense. So the people at Babel are so anxious about everybody else that they build a tower to protect themselves so they can see who's coming. Yeah. I'm probably what, is it a castle or something like that? So I think what, what, um, Genesis is imagining is an ancient city in ancient cities have are walled and they have these towers precisely for this kind of protection. So it's not like some stairway to heaven, right? Which I think is the way that we tend to assume it. It just means it's a really tall tower. Um, and notice also, this is interesting tidbit. I think a lot of people assume that God destroyed the tower, but if you look at Genesis 11, God does that, does not actually destroy the tower. It says that they leave off building the tower. The tower is still there. Um, so the pow- the problem isn't that tower it's what the tower and the walls represent and that's fear of the outside world that is so the story is told about living in baltimore and growing up in a school where the primary motive of the prince was not race such as religion so catholics and protestants and jews and that that was another way that people sought to divide themselves so I think it's another example of how this works. I think this happens around questions of gender. It happens around questions of class. This sense that our differences are a curse or an affliction, right? They divide us. But what if even the many religions of people around us, not just different Christian traditions, but the many religions are themselves a gift from God, a way for us to draw near to the stories of others and wonder how God might be speaking in those spaces. And I don't mean that, you know, this this thing that you sometimes hear where all religions are basically the same we're all climbing up the same mountain and taking different paths i don't actually believe that i think that cheapens the the religious claims of all these different communities i think we can passionately and prophetically hold on to our confessions about who jesus is that jesus was the resurrected god we can believe that deeply um uh and hold on to that tightly even as we approach our neighbors, expecting that God has already done something in their lives, that God has spoken and moved, even if they're not followers of Jesus, that God is always in the business of surprising us. Yeah. So what's the church supposed to do in light of all this? What's our job? What's our calling? Is that the question? Yeah. So I think it might mean... That when we, I don't know if you all have this in your sign, in a lot of church signs that say everyone is welcome here. And sometimes some churches should put an asterisk by that because they mean everyone is welcome here. And then you look in fine print, as long as you look like us, talk like us, don't try to change us too much, then you're welcome here. I think one, it means extending an actual radical welcome to those newcomers who might come into our churches or into our neighborhoods. Expecting that God brings a gift in the lives of these folks. But second, it might mean that Sunday mornings may continue to be quite segregated. Right? I'm not interested in, in tearing apart what's happened for generations in black church traditions. The kind of resilience and survival that's found there, that's, that's not something that we want to dispense of. I don't want to get rid of what's happening in Latinx immigrant communities and the way they support one another What I am very interested in is how we can equip one another and teach one another to have this radical welcome in this building, but also as we're moving through our world and our neighborhoods and our jobs and our schools, that we embody and practice that welcome, that curiosity about others, and that we do it not because we're polite or nice, but precisely because it's God's invitation, God's invitation to see in all those differences. A gift that might just change us altogether. yeah so how do you express that radical welcome yeah 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 could it be social justice could it be activism yeah yeah i think it's 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 a particular call that your community has and i just met you all and i just this is the first time i've been here in swarthmore pennsylvania so i don't know i don't know if i can tell you that um, But God can show you that, what your call is in this community. Um, It might mean partnerships with communities of color um, where it's not just this church and its resources going and helping other people, right? It's not like a unilateral thing, but it is this this true partnership. And even if we worship together uh, apart from each other most Sundays, that there's friendship and partnership in that work. It could be social justice work. It could be this activism. Um, in many communities around this country, the reason that white communities are where they are and where other communities are where they are is not an accident. It was designed this way, and the highways cut right through those black communities on purpose. So sometimes it's us imagining what repair might look like. What might it look like to use those resources that were uh, that were this? Um, that were accrued to the church because of privilege, because of structures of injustice, how might we use those resources for the sake of the repair of communities that were broken along the way? Um, and again, that might look different for all kinds of communities. That's that's the work that I think God is calling us all to. The resource that I think God gives us is precisely that biblical imagination that I think will lead us away from fear of the other, from anxiety about what we might lose to hope and curiosity about the new things that God is doing in our midst. All right. Thank you so much, friends. Thanks for being here this afternoon.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, uh, feel free to uh, grab some refreshment, friends. I mean, this was such a wonderful time to to hear uh some of your story to hear some of uh when we talk about this lecture series friends of an anti-racist faith of beginning with scripture it really is about grounding us in um maybe what you're sharing about uh reframing how we're even approaching difference one of not necessarily oh maybe i wish it wasn't this way but one of really recognizing and appreciating difference and i love what you said uh maybe we will catch a glimpse of the gift of God if we open ourselves up to that possibility. Uh, so I would love to do another round of applause for Eric. Thank you so much for being uh, here with us. Friends, go ahead and feel free to stick around for some refreshments. And then Sarah has one more question. Yes, thank you. Um, so yeah, let me share a little bit more about the next two. October 17th at 3 p.m., we will have our second speaker um, again since we're building up on anti-racism and scripture. Our next one will be on uh, uh, PCUSA history, and um, both anti-racism and racist um, strands that happen within our own denomination. Uh, So we'll be looking at that. Uh, Dr. William Yu will be visiting us via Zoom. So you will find that information, of course, on our website, our weekly e-notes. If you have any questions, please email either uh, Reverend Sarah or I, um, that is happening again October seventeenth, same time, three p.m. And then in November, uh, I can't remember the name, the date now. Twenty-first, uh, um, uh, Reverend Dr. Claudio Carvales from Union Theological Seminary will be here to talk to us about um, anti-racism work and worship. He is a—he's also a very uh, dynamic guy. I know. I just—I love Claudio. Um, I love both William, Claudio, and Eric. So I'm just—I'm happy that all here. Um, he'll be speaking about how worship can be seen as an act of resistance as well again with an anti-racism uh, lens so make sure uh to he'll be here with us in person uh i think at that point hopefully in fellowship hall but we'll be giving out all those details in our weekly notes thank you sarah all right thank you friends Thank you for tuning in for this special episode from our Anti-Racism Faith Lecture Series. This was our first of three, led by Rev. Dr. Eric Barreto on Scripture and Race. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.